0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Nick. Good morning everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that's what it feels like to be a teacher. <laughs> so I'm Shana um, and it's an honour to welcome you this morning to our second Worship and Theme Talks, where today we are exploring wider social justice issues. So, welcome everyone, whether you have slept okay or had disrupted sleep. (laughs) Yes, sorry. So, welcome also to Jane and the engagement group online. So, I know some of us have been rushing around this morning as well. So, let us settle ourselves in, focusing on a moment, for a moment. On where we are. In the room with me here we are in a place where many Unitarians have gathered for many years before us. And for you at home maybe noticing the space that you have created to be here with us online. And perhaps taking a few intentional breaths. Breathing in. Breathing out. Thank you. So I'll light our chalice to start our time of worship together. And I light this chalice for the web of life which sustains us, for the sacred circle of life in which we have our being. May this flame remind us to continue to honor our own light, to share that light gracefully with each other and the world, and be a light in the darkness. So I'd like to share a story with you now. And this is a story about a prince, and I'm going to call him Mario. (laughs) I don't know if he has a brother. (laughs) But Mario was a very handsome, brave, and intelligent prince. He seemed like the perfect prince, but he was very unfair. It seemed like nobody had ever explained to him the nature of justice. If two people came over to him over some argument, expecting him to resolve the matter, he would usually decide in favor of whichever one seemed most charming or most handsome or whoever had the best looking sword. (laughs) Tired of this, the prince's father the king decided to get a wise man to teach his son about justice. My wise friend, please take him away, said the king, and don't bring him back until he's ready to be a just and fair king. So the wise man left with the prince and they went on a journey by boat. On the boat ride, they suffered a shipwreck and ended up on a desert island. They had no food and they had no water and they were the only people there. Moni didn't like that. (laughs) (laughs) But the prince was a great hunter and so for the first few days on the island he managed to catch some fish. But when the old wise man asked him to share the fish with him, the young prince said no. Then some days later, when the prince couldn't get any more fish, the wise man was managing to catch birds almost every day. And when the prince asked him, the wise man, to share the birds with him, the wise man said no, just as the prince had done to him. And the prince got thinner and thinner until finally he burst into tears and begged the wise man to share some of his food with him. And the wise man said, I will share the food with you if you show me you've learnt your lesson. So having heard what the wise man was trying to teach him, the prince said, justice consists of sharing what we have equally. The wise man congratulated him and gave him some food. And later that day, the ship was rescued. And they returned home, well, they were on their way home. And on their way home, they came across two tribes by a mountain, and they were arguing about how to share their meat and vegetables out. And one tribe leader asked the prince, asked the prince for help. And the prince said, oh, that's very easily solved. Just split everything equally. And so the prince had already made good use of what the wise man had taught him. But after saying this, suddenly there came thousands of cries from the mountainside. Hordes of angry people came to question the prince. We can't share the food equally. There are more of us and less of them, so we will starve. You are trying to kill us. So the prince understood the situation and spent time thinking about this until he said, Don't share the food equally. Instead, share out according to the number of people in each tribe and how much each person eats. The people were very happy with this answer and they gave the prince garlands and some gold and bid him and the wise man a safe journey home. And as they were walking home, the prince said to the wise man, I've learned something new. It's not fair to give the same to all. The first thing is to share, but you must take people's differing needs into account. And the wise man smiled with satisfaction and said, I think you'll be a fine king. And he embraced the prince. And he was right. The prince became known throughout the kingdom for his fairness and his wisdom. And when the time came, he became king, and he was the best leader the kingdom had ever had. So as the children leave for their activities, I'm going to invite us to sing our first hymn from your Purple Hymn Books, hymn number 195. We sing a love, and please rise as you're willing and able to after the introduction, hymn 195. please be seated. So I invite you to join me now in a time of prayer and reflection. We call upon the divine energy that keeps us engaged in the world, and helps us to know love. May we honor the place inside of each other in which the entire universe dwells. May we recognize it as a place of peace, of love, of joy, and of truth. May we know that when each of us is in that place within ourselves, we are one. In the spirit of community, may we find strength and common purpose. May we remember that we are part of the web of life that makes us one with all humanity, one with all the universe. spirit of compassion, we are truly grateful for the chance to create a beloved community this week, to share love and to support one another. In these moments of stillness, we ask for our personal prayers and for our hopes for the world to be made whole. May it be so. Amen. In a moment, I'm going to invite Sarah Tinker to share a reading with us by Vietnamese Buddhist monk and peace activist Thich Nhat Hanh. The reading contains content that some people may find upsetting and or traumatising, as it contains themes of sexual violence involving a child. If you wish to step out of the room during the reading or at any point during the service, please do what you need to do. And Michael is available if you need him. So as Sarah comes up, if you wish to leave, you are very welcome to do so. Thank you, Sarah.
2: In, uh, in 1978, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, there are many boat people who were attacked by sea pirates. And even though the United Nations and many countries tried to help the government of Thailand prevent that kind of piracy, Sea pirates continued to inflict much suffering on the refugees. And one day we received a letter telling us about a young girl on a small boat who was raped by a Thai pirate. She was only 12 and she jumped into the ocean and drowned herself. When you first learn of something like that, you get angry at the pirate. You naturally take the side of the girl. As you look more deeply, you may see it differently. If you take the side of the little girl, then it's easy. You only have to take a gun and shoot the pirate. But we can't do that. In my meditation, I saw that if I had been born in the village of the sea pirate and raised in the same conditions as he was, I would now be the pirate. There is a great likelihood that I would become a pirate and I can't condemn myself so easily. In my meditation, I saw that many babies are born along the Gulf of Siam Hundreds every day. And if we, educators, social workers, politicians, and others, do not do something about the situation, in um, 25 years or so, a number of them will become sea pirates. That is certain. If you or I were born in those fishing villages, we might become sea pirates <clears throat> in 25 years. So, If you take a gun and kill the pirate, you shoot all of us, because all of us are to some extent responsible for this state of affairs. After a long meditation, I wrote this poem, and in it there are three people, the 12-year-old girl, the pirate, and me. Can we look at each other and recognise ourselves in each other? The title of the poem is called, Please Call Me by My True Names, because I have so many names. And when I hear one of these names, I have to say, yes. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am the Mayflower metamorphosing on the surface of the river. And I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the Mayflower fly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant, selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am the member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and my laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and my pain are one. Please. Call me by my true names. So I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion.
1: Thank you, Sarah. I'd like to invite us to sing again, and this time the words are in your order of service. You'll notice that there are five verses there, but for the sixth verse, we're going to go back to verse one. Sorry, that's not, it wasn't clear on the order of service, so at the end we'll go back to verse one. So, as you're able and willing to. Please be seated except for Louise <laughs> so I invite Louise now to come and share with us today's theme talk thank you Louise
3: good morning good morning and good morning to those of you at home the title of our theme for today is me or we I'd like to start with some words by Buddhadasa Bhikkhu. The entire cosmos is a cooperative. The sun, the moon, and the stars live together as a cooperative. When we realize that the world is a mutual, interdependent, cooperative enterprise, that human beings are, are all mutual friends in the process of birth, old age, suffering and death, then we build a noble, even heavenly environment. If our lives are not based in this truth, then we will perish. Yesterday, I was talking about our own stories, how they form our identity as individuals with unique experiences, and the benefits of telling them and being heard. Today I'm gonna start to widen things out as our individual stories show how we are entwined with what's going on in the wider world. We can't escape it, we live in it. If If we can recognize that. Accepting that this is the case opens up our eyes to injustices that we might not have been aware of. The truly authentic relationship takes us into the realm of the political. We are all parts of multiple systems, the ecological systems which make up the whole of life on planet Earth, but also economic systems, organizations and society. The importance of recognizing that we exist in a wider world of systems that impact on us means that we can see that any difficulties that we have are probably not due to personal failings, but to a system that restricts certain groups, an environment that fails to provide opportunities, a society that tells us that some people have less value than others. You will hopefully remember Ngozi Adichie Chimamanda's Dangers of a Single Story that we had yesterday. Brilliant, though she is, and I really love her, she was not the first to explore the different stories we tell this way. W.E.B. Dubois was an American sociologist, historian, civil rac- rights activist, pan-Africanist, author, poet, researcher, and editor, sounds like a very busy man, and the first African-American to be awarded a PhD at Harvard. Taiwo, Taiwo Afuapi and Gillian Hughes explained that he, and later Foucault, They explain it like this. They understood dominant knowledges as stories or discourses, the spoken, written, or behavioral expectations shared within a social cultural group that are dominant because they are accepted as truth, not questioned, and are maintained by social structures. Subjugated knowledges, stories, or discourses are those which are ignored or dismissed such as the experiences or views or values of those who are marginalized. Dubois argued that we are ever confined by our social, cultural, and historical position in the world, but potentially emancipated by our appreciation of the ways in which we are oppressed. So what what Dubois and Foucault are saying is that the dominant stories are the ones with the power, They have been internalised by the individual and are the lens through which the individual is interpreting the events of their lives and shaping their own identity. This means that not only do we sometimes tell or believe a single story, these stories are also often the stories of those in power, thin stories that oppress us. So, Taiwo Afuapi and Gillian Hughes are proponents of liberation psychology. When I discovered liberation psychology, it blew my mind. It's the complete opposite to a culture that sometimes tells us that if we meditate more, if we do our gratitude diaries, if we volunteer, if we exercise enough, we will be able to fix our anxiety, our depression that it's our well-being is totally within our own power, when of course we know that it's not. It's the liberation psychology is the exact opposite of the poisonous ideology that tells us that we are poor because we are not thrifty enough, we are not organized enough. Liberation psychology seeks to understand the person within their socio-political, cultural, and historical concept, context. Sorry, there's a lot of really long words in this, <laughs> so I'm not being snobby about it. If you, I, Apologies, apologies. I'm gonna go through it a few times and hopefully you'll just get the feel, and honestly, if you don't get it, as fine. That would be my fault, not yours. So, liberation psychology seeks to understand the person within their socio-political, cultural and historical context. Therefore, distress is understood not solely as a problem of them as an individual, but in the context of an unjust environment that psychologizes and individualises distress. The negative dominant social narrative and oppressions are often internalized, so naming those injustices along with telling stories of resistance promotes well-being. A system of oppression, discrimination, exclusion, deprivation, stress, poverty, leads to internalized oppression with resultant feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, anger, shame, a sense of inferiority and vulnerability to psychological distress and addiction. People can feel that their struggles are a result of personal failure. This has two consequences. Firstly, that if they are due to a personal failure, then they are difficult to fix. And secondly, that failure in itself has become part of their identity. So naming and thus externalizing the oppression and the negative narrative in itself promotes well being. The story of injustice and acts of strength and resilience can be uncovered and reinforced, and those who have been oppressed gain a sense of urgency to take action. So, taking problems out of the realm of personal failure empowers people. Imagine being a young refugee in the UK. <clears throat> Life is very hard because the asylum system is grindingly depressing, and education and social care and housing are inadequate. You feel hopeless. Furthermore, the dominant social discourse is of refugees arriving like a swarm, an invasion, a drain on the economy, and this story permeates your identity. You come to feel that you are a rubbish person. But this can all change if you're given support to see your strengths. If you can see that the system is unfair, then this takes away your sense of personal failure. And if you can recognize that the social discourse is just a story told to help politicians, not the truth, then this will take the power out of the story and allow space for your own individual, authentic story. Taiwo Afuapi writes, inspiringly, I became a psychologist, therapist, because my heart believed that our stories and how we listen to each other are important. I started to see that collaborative, intimate and responsive conversations do make a difference. They have the possibility, the, the potential to generate possibilities where none seemed to exist before. We are the stories we tell and the stories that are told about us, and ultimately, stories are unfinished. We do people a disservice and perhaps harm when we reduce their lives to slogans and treat them as though they do not have complex, rich and moving stories to tell. Working with individuals does not have to meet mean reverting to individualistic concepts and solutions when we stay open to the social constraints on people's lives and their resistance to these. I continue to be shaped by these conversations and the people I am privileged to meet, looking out for gems and finding them, becoming more committed to equality, creativity and humanity. That was Taiwo Afuapi. For liberation psychology, the personal, is political. Much as we would like to keep politics out of things, or some people would like to keep politics out of things, perhaps perhaps we are worried that getting into politics will lead to conflict. Um, Perhaps we feel that the whole political system is broken and even irrelevant. Politics shapes everything. The COVID crisis really highlighted this as the decisions of politicians shaped our lives directly and instantly. But austerity, the state of the planet, the stories we tell about oppressed peoples are all driven by politics. We may feel that our interpersonal relationships, our church groups should be outside the political, political discourse. I understand this wish, but if we don't recognize the influence of politics on people's lives, what are we saying to those around us? That, for example, it's it's their fault that they can't find somewhere affordable to live, or that their impending homelessness is not not something that can be spoken about. Some of us, myself included, are somewhat cushioned from the effects of political decisions and societal discourses. If so, we need to recognise how lucky we are. But we cannot live outside these systems. And in order to hear the authentic experiences of those around us, we need to recognise and not dismiss what is going on all around and the effect of it on all of our lives. As I was preparing these talks, I became aware of a very large elephant in the room. I was, in my, in my mind, I was always imagining a dyad, two people, one person telling their story, the other person listening. I think it's because I'm using ideas from Martin Buber, who had a lot of influence on the development of counselling and therapy, and also my own work as well. We, I, got stuck in the thinking that says there will be a sharer of stories and a sharee. Listener, let's say listener, that's better. The danger is that we get stuck in these roles and drawn into the roles of rescuer and victim, like parts in a play, which again provide a limited identity for both parties. How can these different roles be encapsulated in one person? Maybe it's just me, but I find, I find it all too easy to get stuck in a role which is only part of my story. As an example, maybe with one specific person, we can get trapped in the role of always giving advice, but we are unable to ask for help back. Limiting our roles may feel like the safest thing. We stay within our comfort zone, and we interact in ways that feel familiar and predictable. Safe in our role, however, we reduce the authenticity of the encounter. Walt Whitman in his grand poem, Song of Myself, makes an epic journey through a long catalog of examples of American life. The poem includes the famous quote, do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. It tells an expansive story, it opens our eyes to the fact that we are not limited by one or two roles, but have almost infinite capacity. And Thich Nhat Hanh in our reading tells us how his famous poem, Call Me By My True Names came about, writes, can we look at each other and recognize ourselves in each other? In the same way, we need to meet our fellow humans where they are, in whatever role works in that moment, open to whatever we might find. A genuinely authentic encounter. In this thing we call life, we all have complexities, we all contain multitudes and we are all connected. Tomorrow I will be carrying on to say more about the ways in which people are invisible, the ways in which people are um, oppressed, and the stories we might tell, and it's, it's a continuation of the same theme. But I would, like to re- I would like to revisit Martin Buber's words that I shared on Sunday, just to remind <laughs> us. The basis of human life is twofold, and it is one the wish of every person to be confirmed as what they are, even as what they can become by other people, and the innate capacity in humankind to confirm their fellow humans in this way. Actual humanity exists only where this capacity unfolds. Actual humanity only exists when we can truly be ourselves, and be seen and celebrated by the other person. And we see and celebrate ourselves and the other person, not just as individuals, but as, I don't want to say cogs in the machine, that sounds very mechanistic, as, as a living, growing parts of systems living, growing shoots in the world. As Walt Whitman puts it, I am the mate and companion of people, all just as immortal and fathomless as myself. Victoria Safford writes joyfully, I will not speak about acceptance of other people, with some other kind of lifestyle. I can only look in laughing wonder at human life in all its incarnations. I can taste only in passing the breath of the spirit of life on my mouth and understand our common longing to breathe in deep, deep gulps of it. I cannot think of being anyone else's ally even, because even that implies some degree of separation, some degree of safety for some of us, not all. We are allied with no one and with nothing but love, the larger love transcending all our understanding within which all the different, differing, gorgeously various, variant, beautifully deviant aspects of ourselves are bound in elegant unity. I like that last sentence, so I'm going to repeat it again. We are allied with no one and with nothing but love, the larger love transcending all our understanding, within which all the different, differing, gorgeously various, variant, beautifully deviant aspects of ourselves are bound in elegant unity. And as before, I invite you now for prayerful reflection on what today's discussion of me or we, us as individuals existing within systems may have brought up for you. You are invited, if you wish, to write down something you would like to be included in our closing prayer. Something may have occurred to you while I was speaking or maybe on your mind. You may like to give thanks for somebody, something, an insight or name, a personal situation that we can hold in loving kindness. As always, there are a lot of us here, you do not have to do this and if you do, we will attempt to incorporate it in our prayer, but we will keep all the post-its and display in some way in the future.
1: now entering a period of silent reflection. If you are still writing, you are welcome to bring up your post-it note to the bowl. If anyone can't come up to the bowl and needs me to come and get their post-it, please raise your hand. So just before I invite us to join in a time of prayer, a little reminder to leave your pens that you've been writing on, um, maybe under the seats. And if any pens have gone walkies since yesterday, if you could return them, that would be lovely. (laughs) So let us join together in a time of prayer. Spirit of life, God of our hearts. We pray to celebrate ourselves as individuals and as part of all people on earth. We pray for me and we pray for we. We pray for those who don't feel safe to share their stories. And we hold ourselves, the pirate, the girl, as one in our hearts. May we be blessed with self-compassion and forgiveness that flows out to one another. May we join not just as allies, but as friends. Friendship and togetherness, we can face the issues as one. Spirit of Love. May we be allied with love and with gratitude for this day and for life. May it be so, Amen. So coming to a close of our morning worship today, and we invite you to sing one last time, this time from your green books, hymn number 204, We Shall Overcome. So please rise as you are able and willing to after the introduction. Hymn 204, We Shall Overcome. Feel free to move and dance and clap if you like. Thank you. As we leave our time of worship, may we be warmed by the healing balm of connection. May it give us strength to deepen our connections with all of life. May we continue in the pursuit of justice, equality, and peace, and move into the light of holiness be served.